the biggest thing is it gives me attention in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like everything's about getting attention, but yeah. you know, when you do something and people give you attention for something that you've done well and that yeah. you've enjoyed doing and you've, you've made people happy with it. Well, that's a lot better than banging your head against the ground or, yeah. or <laughs> taking pills or whatever. It's just a lot healthier. And so I think art, helps keep me grounded especially when I've got another project that I'm excited about just keeps me going so that's my answer to that question Fellow sophisticated creatives, welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. It's absolutely pouring out down rain out there. Yeah, it's but hey, I guess it's fall, right? So, Munchausen syndrome, syndrome, Munchausen syndrome. How many of us know what that is? So I looked up. The definition of that. So Munchausen syndrome, and I hope um, my guest today corrects me on my pronunciation if I have it wrong, is a mental condition in which a person repeatedly seeks medical attention for falsified, exaggerated, or self-inflicted physical symptoms. And today I have artist and author Cindy Bakshan on the podcast. And we are going to talk about her nonfiction book, Liar Liar Gown on Fire, which is her memoir of her lifelong struggle with mental illnesses, specifically bipolar disorder and factitious disorder, more commonly known as Munchausen syndrome. Cindy Welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, Joanna. I'm just so so thankful to have this time to chat with you and following your art for all these years now. And it's just so exciting. And to have an opportunity to talk about my book and explain a little bit about these disorders is is a real privilege. Thank you. Oh good, good. And your art. I remember I like I said, I everybody pretty much knows I'm on Instagram more than I am on Facebook. And for me, it was seeing another artist who illustrates buses. And it's not just the bus, it's the entire landscape behind. And I think your art is so cool. It is so (laughs) different. So 
Let, let's let's roll the tape back a bit, so to speak, and just let's we'll talk about your your memoir, and then we'll get into your art. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. So I think you're very brave writing your memoir and basically opening yourself up to the world. Um, do you think you're brave or better yet? Why did you want to write your memoir and your story? Well, it's interesting. Um, I've been like racking my brain trying to remember why I started writing it. I don't even really remember what prompted me I just remember one day being at the computer and writing out the first couple of sentences of this of my memoir and and just as the memories that I had and putting myself back in there like in the way that I felt and the way that everything was happening around me yeah um and those those first couple of sentences actually remained in the book uh right through the, the right through all the all the editing process and right through to publishing it they're they're right there and they were what launched it um I'd love creative writing when I was young, yeah. but when I was in grade 12, I had this really bad case of writer's block okay. and I had a course that I dropped out of. And I just honestly, 40, I guess I was 43 when I started writing this. And it was like that long ago that I, it took that long for me to recover. Yeah. Um, but when you've got your, when you're doing your own story, you've got all your characters and you've got all of your plot. So you can just be free to write. Yeah. But after I started writing, I realized that it was for more than just me. Um, it wasn't just therapy. I was starting to realize that there were other people out there like me that I wanted to know. Yeah. And that I knew that there was very few resources on this topic of Munchausen syndrome, or what I call factitious disorder, which is the correct term nowadays. Okay. Um, if you look online under Munchausen's or factitious disorder, you'll basically find some textbooks and then you'll find a couple of memoirs, one of which is mine. Yeah. Um, it's it, And so it's a very lonely thing when you can't even find information about what you're experiencing on the internet. It's, it's pretty tough. So I was writing for other people as well. Um, and one of the exciting things about, about publishing was about a month after I put my book online onto Amazon, I got a, a message from Facebook. And it was a woman who was also suffering from the disorder. And she found my book and she read it and she reached out. And I was like, okay. The reason I wrote the book has been accomplished, even if it was just that one person. That's all. Yeah. That's all it was. Um, yeah. yeah. Now the brave thing, I honestly, I actually do feel that I was brave. There's a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety that goes around when you have to open up like this with something that embarrassing and that shameful yeah. to people in your life. And just you know, as I opened up with each stage of writing and and sending out to beta readers and you know, deciding to actually put it online onto Amazon and realizing that now the whole world could find it, all these things I'd done. It was pretty scary. So yeah, I think bravery was part of it. I'm not a super brave person, but that was a pretty brave thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. I'm just scaling it down to, you know, I write fiction. And when my first fiction novel came out, you know, the, my spouse said to me, he goes, so how does it feel? And I said, oh, my God, I go now everybody out there knows what bizarre imagination I now have. And like, that's fiction. So I could just yeah. imagine how, yeah. how you feel, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh. And yeah. I want now. So it's not 
you haven't suffered from any sort of substance abuse, okay? Um, and I'm thinking like uh, heroin or cocaine or anything like that. You were enrolled at UVic and you have your BA, right? BFA, yeah, Bachelor yeah. of Fine Arts. Okay, yeah. so yeah, so w what were you taking at UVic? So I went to UVic when I was right out of high school, so fresh out of grade 12, and I started in the visual arts program in the BFA, Bachelor of Fine Arts program. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was studying there, and that was my first time away from home. It was terrifying. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And okay, so how old were you? when you first started inflicting self-harm and, and why did you do it? And Cindy, if you hear a ting, it's just because I'm making sure I turn up the volume a little bit. So, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, how old were you when you first inflicted, um, started inflicting self-harm? Self well, my first memory isn't with self-harm, but it is with faking illness. So I didn't actually do anything to myself to hurt myself. Yeah. But I was four years old. It's one of my very first memories. I remember I was in one of those flannel nighties that my mom had made me cozy. It was Christmas. I don't know if it was Christmas Eve or, you know, a couple of days before Christmas, but we were at my grandfather's house in Calgary. Um, and my mom was sick and she was up in the bedroom and everyone was kind of paying attention to her and, and uh, she wasn't paying attention to me. And I guess I just felt a little bit left out and a little bit jealous. And I remember just you know, sitting on the stairs, just kind of holding my stomach and moaning and trying to look pathetic. And, yeah. and nobody paid attention to me, no one even noticed. But that was the first time I can remember really, really consciously that I did that behavior. Yeah. And then it, it escalated as I got older, I never really stopped, got worse and worse. Yeah, and that's, and that's what I, I want to emphasize, because I mean, I know, other, I remember a time when I think I put my my hand against my forehead as a child because I wanted it to be like I had a temperature because I just didn't want to go to school, right? Yeah. Um, and now that is like, so kids do that, but you yours, um, you it it got more severe. Um, like you you did this throughout childhood, teenage years, and adulthood. Am I right? Yeah, you're right. Uh, Okay, so this wasn't just like a, a one-off of, oh, I want to play hooky, you know. This no. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. So, like, the, the seriousness of this is you were being taken to the hospital, okay? Um, and, mm -hmm. in, in, and in your book, you mention how you, you've, you've thrown your, you throw yourself down on the ground and you start shaking, and it, mm. you're hoping you're being di you'll get diagnosed with epilepsy, okay? And you mention um, one of the times, and I say one of the times when you were taken to the hospital, you have an EEG and you have a CT scan, and the doctor comes back into the room and you know he says your tests are perfectly normal, and he wants to speak to your mom. Okay, and that's when you find out you're, that you're going to see a therapist, and you have an argument with your therapist, and you, and you tell her, you say, I'm not crazy. Um, do you think if any of the adults would have told you what was really going on, it might have helped, or do you think they even knew themselves? I'm going to back up a little bit here, because yeah. the, seizures, the seizures kind of escalated, so the first the first time it happened, I actually just kind of 
didn't even really know what I was doing. I just was mad at my boyfriend and I just decided I was going to pretend to faint and I fell down on some grass and, you know, I was so nervous that I was shaking. I wasn't intentionally shaking and he took me to the emergency room and of course there was nothing wrong. So the doctor sent me home and, and I just, I got this rush of attention though from the nurse and from the doctor and from my boyfriend. And it was just, it was just enough to keep me going. And it just got more and more severe. It spiraled, it snowballed. And then at one point the doctor was like, okay, you need to, you're, you need to my mom, you need to take her to a specialist. And okay. so um, I was taken to children's hospital in Vancouver. And uh, there, that was where I had the EEG okay. uh, and the CT scan done. And of course they were normal. I remember the exam. <laughs> I was like, I so badly wanted to be diagnosed with epilepsy. And I was like, okay, well, what do I, what do I have to do to get this diagnosis? And so the doctor would ask me to do things and I'd be like flopping all over the place, falling down and just all these stupid things that, you know, I was, I guess I was about 15 and I just, I don't know, I was being silly, but anyways, afterwards he, uh, he called my mom and, and, and like you said, he, he told her I needed to see a therapist. I was waiting outside and then I got taken to a therapist and I was very, very angry that the adults in my life weren't believing me or so I thought that they thought I was crazy. I had no desire for psychological help or mental health. I just wanted to be seen as physically sick. Okay. Yeah. So I think what your question about my parents and, and the adults in my life, if they had said that they thought that I was faking, I would have been really, really upset. I don't think it would have been a good solution. Okay. Um, yeah. And I remember my mom, when I talked to her, you know, many years later after I'd, you know, been diagnosed with factitious disorder, I'd come clean to everyone. And she said, you know, we were thinking of putting you on a placebo. Um, but then she said, well, what if, what if, what if you stopped having the seizures on the placebo? Then what would we do, right? That'd be pretty weird. So, so they decided not to do that, but um, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And yeah, it was not good. Okay. This is complicated. Like this is it complicated. Is. Holy yeah. smokes. Okay. I know when I'm, I was reading your book, you know, and it's like, I was reading, I thought, oh my gosh, I've, I got the feeling that you were feeling so torn. Because at, at times you knew what you were doing, but then at other times, you know, you were mentioning how you want to want to come clean, you want to come clean, but you, you're yeah. embarrassed, right? And, you, and, and, whoa, whoa, okay. And so I know when you started the art program in Victoria, you know what, I'm like, Oh, yay, yay, she's going to make it, you know, right? As I'm reading, like, yes. <laughs> you know, um, but you were still torn and you're still continuing, like continuing, right? You're yes. continuing um, the, the self-harm. The self um, now, was there, there is a, like, it seemed to me, and by all means, please jump in, jump in at any time, okay? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, when you were in the art program in Victoria, you like I got the feeling that you were feeling again conflicted and torn, and yeah. you started riding the transit buses. And I was wondering if you found some peace riding those transit buses. I did. Um, well, there's a little bit of a backstory to that yeah. too. Yeah. So I had started 
faking the seizures again and um, it got really bad. And even though my EEG came back normal, the neurologist I was seeing took away my driver's license. Right. And I had been working as a nanny and looking after three young children. And the same week that I had my license taken away, they didn't know anything about this. Um, They fired me and I was a live-in nanny. So all of a sudden I had no job, no driver's license and nowhere to live. And so I remember having to take the bus to try and find places to live. And it was just, oh, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know how the system worked. It was awful. Yeah. Um, and then I, I got on this one bus one day and I just, I just broke down crying. Yeah. I was just, I was just sobbing. And the bus driver at the next stop, he turned around and he motioned for me to come up. Yeah. And he, uh, he asked me what was wrong. And I just kind of dumped the whole story out on him, you know, I didn't tell him about the faking, but I told him about the job loss and, the, yeah. and lack of a house and, you know, that I'd lost my license. And he said, you know what? He said, I think I can help you with some of this. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he, he knew a person that lived, that owned a, owned a property on that route. And that route happened to be the number 14 UVic, which was the best bus to get to university on. Yeah. Um, I know so these he numbers. Said, Sorry, yeah, Cindy. Sure I know these do. numbers yes. of having lived it, in Victoria, right? Does it still exist, the number 14? Does it yeah. still go to UVic? Yeah. Okay. See, because I used to ride the number 75. Ah, yes. That goes up to Sydney, doesn't it? Yeah, or Sydney, Bay yeah. Area. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. So, anyways, he said, you know, I know this guy on this route. He's got this apartment for rent in a basement. He said, what I'll do, I'll drop you off. He said, I know them. I know my friends there. You go have a look and then I'll pick you up on the flip side when I come back. Nice. So I looked at the place. It was nice. It was clean. It was bright, even though it was in a basement. And it was actually a police officer. And he 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 um he said he'd be happy to rent it for me. And so I didn't have any money because I'd lost my job. So I contacted my parents and they they sent over some money so that I could I could pay my deposit in. Yeah. And then I got a Murray. This, this driver's name was Murray. He'd introduced himself to me. I got in this bus and it was just like something had broken in me. I felt so much better. And after that, I started riding the buses everywhere. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I was still faking the seizures. And now I had a whole bus as an audience, and that wasn't so good. Oh, wow. I, I would talk to the drivers, and some of them were, well, so many of them were just so nice to me. Yeah. And I don't know whether they were lonely and wanted someone to talk to themselves, or whether they were just being polite and wanted me to shut up. Yeah. But I actually made some really good friends. Um, and, you know, even when I wasn't talking to the drivers, I would like, I would feel this peace when I was on those buses. I'd be sitting and I'd look at the scenery out the window um, as it rushed by. I'd feel that stopping and starting and hear the engines and the air brakes. And the, it just was so relaxing. And I remember at one point I would get up at six in the morning and catch the first bus and I wouldn't be home until 11 at night. And these are on days that I didn't have school. I'd be on the bus like the whole day. And it was wow. crazy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's I I find that interesting, you know, and this ties in to your art, you know. So that mm. I find this I find this really interesting. Okay, just where you like I like I say found a little bit of a peace with mm-hmm. everything that and, and a little less loneliness, you know? Yeah. A little bit of friendship, which is yeah. all I really needed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to move and I want us to, listeners to know that like we're going through uh, times in Cindy's life, but throughout these times, you're still 
trying to bring on these seizures, right? You're still mm-hmm. th- like th- throwing yourself down, you know, on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so this is still ongoing. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like you get these little moments where you have some peace. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you tell again, as I'm reading, you know, I come across the, the part where the day you're at the SkyTrain station. So you're over in Vancouver and mm-hmm. you and you've just you're lying on the pavement after you have feigned a seizure, mm-hmm. all right, and you know you can't like this was like a, a quite the moment for you. You can't continue what you call a double life, right? And this moment, it, it what is it that you decide to do? Because you're trying to, you're trying to break this destructive behavior. So what is it? Mm-hmm. What was the what happened? Well, I'll tell a little bit of how it all happened there that I got to that point. So um, prior to me moving back in with my parents, I got admitted to something called a seizure monitoring unit, seizure monitoring unit, sorry. And that's basically a place where they attach an EEG to your head, plug you into the wall and keep a camera on you 24-7. And they're watching to see if you have a seizure and if so, what the brain activity is at the same time. Okay. And so I was in there for a week and of course there was nothing wrong with me. And so they brought a psychiatrist in and I remember he said, we know you're not a lying little varmint. This is probably just like a blood sugar issue. Like, well, okay, I guess I'm not going to tell this doctor what's going on. (laughs) But that meant that I was able to get my license back. And so I did get my license back and that kind of is part of the story. So I have to go there. So then I moved back home with my parents because I'm just, it's a gong show. I'm not doing well. And my parents think the seizures have stopped, but they haven't. And so I, uh, I was taking life drawing classes in downtown Vancouver, and my parents lived out in Langley, which is quite a far, it's like about 45 minutes east of Vancouver, for those who don't know. Yeah. And I would tell them I'm going to my art class, and I would t- drive my dad's Jimmy to the bus loop, and I would take the bus in and the SkyTrain, and I would fake seizures, and I would do all this stuff. And this one time, though, I was... Like you say, I, I'm always very conflicted. Like, I don't yeah. want to be doing this behavior. It's, it's wrong. I know it's wrong, yet I keep doing it. Yeah. And I had, I faked this really bad seizure. And it was pouring rain. And I was on the concrete under the SkyTrain station at Surrey Central Station, right under, right under the train. Um, and as I'm coming to, I recognize this person who was, I started working in the 7-Eleven and he was one of my coworkers and he sees me and he recognizes me and he starts talking to me and I'm like, Oh my goodness, what have I done? Now someone's going to know because he thought I could drive and all that stuff. It was a mess. And so I'm like, okay, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. This has got to stop. And so I'm like thinking to myself here, sitting on this wet pavement going, what am I going to do? How can I stop this? And I thought, you know what? You've got your license back why don't you get a license, become a bus driver, and you won't be able to muck around with this anymore because you'll lose your license and you'll lose your job and, you know, you'll never get it back. And so I did that. I, I saved up my money at 7-Eleven and I, I worked for a few months and then I paid for a driving training course and I got my first driving job. And after that, it just never happened again for, for many, many years. I didn't do any of that stuff. Yeah. So that's what the turning point was. And that's kind of how I got involved in the buses. Yeah. Well, it's as you're talking, it I almost and you mentioned this in your book. I think it's in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I, I scribble sometimes I write down notes and you know, you keep having these seizures, 
but you know you need to stop. And the thing that came to me and what you mentioned in the beginning of your book, it's almost like it's addictive. Yes. And and in your book, you mentioned it's like addictive, almost like heroin, right? You, you yeah, know, exactly. You, you know you shouldn't do it, but you can't stop, right? Like I'm yeah. sure pe- some people would listening would probably think, well, why didn't she just stop? Well, it that it's not doesn't happen that way. No. Right? No. You know? So, okay. So how long, how long did you drive the buses? Like, and th- this is in um, the lower mainland, like in Vancouver? Yeah, Vancouver and Victoria, basically. So I went back and forth. Um, total total time involved with buses was 14 years. Wow. There were some summers when I didn't drive. Um, I, I also worked as a service person, which is yeah. basically a mechanics help where you you wash and you fuel and you check the oil of the buses and you help the mechanics you know jump start them things like that yeah. um yeah so 14 years doing that and then driving school bus and tour buses um it was i liked it it was good and uh kept me out of trouble for the most part <laughs> well uh, i was gonna say how many how many like i don't i don't want to say the word good years you had but let's say how many years let's say without like an, an, an incident or uh, a wanting to, you know, like feign a seizure? Well, the seizure, the seizures weren't so much of a problem okay. for a while. I, I think I went about four years okay. without any of that yeah. before I actually really did anything, you know, self-harmish. Yeah. Um, I remember, <laughs> this is really embarrassing, but one time this was kind of, this was in the 90s so you know HIV AIDS was still like on everyone's mind and um you know needles and stuff like that people were always concerned about and I I I went to the pharmacist uh, pharmacy and I bought some insulin needles okay and I wedged one of these needles between the two cushions on a bus seat and then I poked myself on it <laughs> and went and told the, mecha- the lead hand mechanic that I'd gotten stuck with a needle and and so he took me to the hospital and it was all this crazy stuff and they they tested me and I was fine, but it was obviously, uh, but that was like just an example of some of the behavior I did. It wasn't all seizures. It was, you know, pretending to sprain an ankle just to get someone to wrap it up for me, things like that. It was the addiction part is I'd like to talk a little bit about that because it helps people understand the disorder and it is a visceral feeling when I'm in that situation where I need that fix I guess you could say my whole body yearns for it my brain but also my whole body it just I guess it's almost like wanting to be carried and looked after and taken care of and just and like heroin it's it it, it's it's a warm feeling that goes through your body and it gets worse each time you do it and it gets the the um, impact gets worse on your on your life it destroys your life but at the same time the benefit you get from it weakens and you don't get as much so it's very much like an addiction although I don't want to compare myself to a heroin addict or cocaine because those are really really hard things and I don't want to imagine that I'm anything like that in terms of having that kind of struggle but I think it is like an addiction yes okay okay so you you do have some life-changing moments and um the one that oh god it made me smile because I'm reading and I'm like gosh no no <laughs> right and it's on it's on page 67 you have this life-changing moment and given all the turmoil 
you're you're going through okay and it's that date it's late in november um you finish the bus driving season and you're going to the ferry terminal and you see something which makes it made me smile and it made and it makes you smile because yep. i think of your art and can you explain what what was that what was what was it that you saw and what did you do yeah, so I'm riding this John the bus, and, and it was actually on River Road in Delta, which doesn't even exist anymore. I know uh, that area. Was, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the, the, the road is gone, so it doesn't exist. So I was riding on the bus to go back, and I was sitting on the left side facing, like I was in a sideways seat, so I could see out the windows on the other side. And all of a sudden, I saw this weird thing in the sky, and it was these poles sticking straight up. Yeah. And I thought... I've seen those before somewhere and I couldn't quite figure out what it was. I'm like, are they trolley bus poles? And I'm like, I got to find out. So I dang the bell, I ringed it and I got off. And one of the funny things about this is that I happen to have a, a disposable camera on me because as a bus driver, if you get in an accident, they want you to take photos. So they always had us carry a disposable camera with us. So I walked back from the stop to where the where I saw the poles and I looked through and there's a chain link fence and there was all these old Brill trolley buses. Now these buses hadn't been on the road since 1986, just before Expo when they brought the new ones on site onto, onto the streets. And I hadn't even, I'd forgotten all about them. I had been so young when I was riding on those and there was a little shock and uh, there was um, just a guy inside and I went in, I said, can I take some pictures of those buses? Yeah, I don't know why he said yes, but he said yes. And he brought in the dogs. He said, okay, you got half an hour. Just be really careful. Don't fall through the holes in the buses. Okay. Yeah. So I went back out there and um, I took a lot of exterior pictures of all these buses and rows. And then some, I would call them portraits of yeah. more intimate shots of individual ones. And then I got inside some of the buses and took more photos. And it was just incredible. The sky that day was this gray, but it was brilliant. It was it was white almost like not like a sunny day but it was this brilliant white and the photographs turned out so well they were just um everything I only had 24 shots and every one of them turned out it was it was great that's all I can say uh so then I got these photos developed and I started drawing buses uh, and I've never stopped that's awesome. <laughs> it got me through my degree it, it got me through the honors program I I don't know how I, how it happened but yeah I love drawing them they're just great now, were the photos you took and the art you created, were, was that the one, were those the ones that ended up in the art show? Um, which art show are you talking about? There's oh, been a couple. Yeah, okay, okay. There was, I thought there was one um, in Victoria. Yes, yes, there was, that's right. Okay. So I was studying, I, w I had gone back to UVic and I was finishing off my, my degree. And so I was doing painting classes yeah. and I was doing this painting of a destination sign. You know, the sign that now they're all digital. Back then they were a roll of canvas. And when I'd gotten one of these buses, there was this roll of canvas with all the words of the streets on it. And then it just kind of slumped down. Yeah. And it was really, really neat because I love painting text. And so I painted this and then this lady had come in and she was looking around at all her artwork in the class and she came over to me and she said oh I want to I want to invite you to a show that we're doing and she said come over to my place she gave me a card she said bring some more of your work samples and we'll talk and so yeah I got invited to my first group show and it was really fun yeah nice nice yeah. you know and but 
you're not out of the woods you're so nope. out of the woods are you right <laughs> no okay. i'm not <laughs> um and it, it was you know it was sad because you have these these great moments right yeah and then it, it's almost like when things got too much um either too tired or too i don't even more than that too stressed yeah. um would you say when things when things got, if it felt like things were getting out of control, is that when you would do something? Because is that what you could control? Does that make I think sense? so. Okay. You know, the control thing is something I've thought about over the years. And I think it's almost like, you know how when you go to a doctor's office and you, you've been, you're worried that you're going to be diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. Well, I go in the doctor's office and actually hope that I'm diagnosed with cancer. Oh, wow. And I think it gives me some kind of semblance of control so that like I've chosen this. I've chosen to be sick or I've chosen to have this wrong with me versus just letting stuff happen to me. And, yeah. um, uh, you know, shortly after all this happened, when I first started experiencing bipolar symptoms, it was really hard because I was out of control and I didn't know what was going on. And I couldn't maintain control, even with the factitious disorder and the, the faking of all that illness. It was just, I was completely gone. So, yeah. 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 So you mentioned about the bipolar and um, things aren't going well at all. Um, you, It was the scene you wrote about on the plane. I, I don't know. Do you want to talk about that or lead up to that about when you were on the plane coming back to Vancouver Island? Yeah, so I think the incident you're referring to is pretty much the last psychotic episode or experience I had before I got put on medication. Okay. So six months earlier, July 4th, I began experiencing psychosis. And I know that I, I had enough lucidity that I could tell that something was wrong, but it yeah. spiraled and I I lost complete touch with reality, which is what psychosis is. And, and um, I had some hallucinations, which is like sensory experiences that are not real, but most of it was delusional, uh, just having these beliefs that weren't real. Yeah. Um, I did so many crazy things. And, you know, my book, I've gone into a lot of them. Yeah. Probably one-sixth of what actually happened made it into the book. It was insane. So if you're curious about what it's like to be in the mind of someone experiencing psychosis, yeah, read my book because it's funny. I You wouldn't think that that would be something you'd remember, but all those memories are seared into my brain and they're, I can remember everything and I can remember so clearly. And so uh, the incident you were talking about, I decided I was going to take this, I guess it was a Greyhound bus. I was going to go from Victoria all the way north to Port Hardy. My plan was to catch a a ferry up as far north as I could and then rent a snowmobile and then I was going to go to Nunavut and I was going to find this compound where they were, were you know, CISA, what, what do we call our, our, our CIA? Is it CISA? Yeah. yeah, where CISA had this big plant and I was going to go in there and do something amazing and save the world. And so I get to Port Hardy and I phone my mom, you know, because I guess I, I, I don't know why, I just phoned her. Yeah. And I was sobbing and I was incoherent and I was at the same time trying to tell her all these exciting things that were happening. It was just a big mess. And she figured out that something was really wrong. Yeah. And she phoned an airline and got a plane arranged from Port Hardy to Vancouver. She got a taxi arranged from the hotel to the Port Hardy airport. 
And, you know, by grace, I got in that cab the next morning instead of getting on the ferry that I wanted to get on. And I came home and that's when I, my last memory of a psychotic thing was I thought that, I thought that there was an atomic bomb going off underneath the plane and that somehow by leaving the island, I'd caused the whole thing to be blown up. It was another thing that tied in with something else in my psychosis. And, you know, the stories all weave together and it gets pretty bizarre. So that was, you know, one of the last um, things that I remember the last delusions. And then I was put on medication that day, that night. So, yeah. And then I became totally lucid within a few days. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. So I don't, I don't want to be asking awful questions, Cindy, but I also, uh, I I don't want anyone else out there feeling alone and I, I, with dealing with this. Right. Yeah. And, um, I really hope people, someone who hears this or knows of someone who may be suffering from from what you went through picks up your book okay mm-hmm. um and again if if you want to backtrack on anything or what i mean is like fill in details which yeah. obviously my questions don't address okay um now things like i say you're not out of the woods yet are you right? no 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 yeah, well, I should I should clarify a little bit that yeah. I I'm very very impulsive. Yeah, and so I have I moved to Calgary I guess nine years ago in 2012. Yeah, and I have done really really well here. I've got a I've good. got a great church community. I I have good relationships at work. I have more friends than I've ever had. Good. Um, but there was a period at work where we went through a budget crisis and everyone was really angry. And there was like lost tempers and, and, you know, your job was threatened and it was just really, really bad. And I got really stressed out. And, and one day I pretended to faint and it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a huge seizure. I just pretended to faint. And um, I got taken to the hospital and I was like planning to tell the doctor what I was doing because I wanted, I wanted some proper help, but he was so nice to me. He was like just paying so much attention and he was telling me all like the things I could do to help my migraines so that I wouldn't faint and all this stuff. And I just couldn't tell him. Yeah. But I went home that day and I was so disappointed in myself. And he had told me to take some Tylenol mixed with ibuprofen, to, you know, to the doses, take them at the same time to help that migraine yeah. um, that I had been experiencing. And when I went to the medicine cabinet to get it, though, I saw a whole bottle of Zoloft that I'd had left over from when I was taking it. I was on a new drug now. And yeah. it was a full bottle. It wasn't I think it's probably three months worth. It wasn't any 30 days because I took 40 of the pills. I counted them and I swallowed them all. And then I was too embarrassed to call an ambulance after what I'd done. But I was like, oh, great. I've gotten myself into real crap here, right? What did I do? And so I had a counselor that I've been seeing at this time. And I I feel so horrible that I did this to her. And I've apologized to her and she's, she's forgiven me. But I texted her and I said, you know, I took these drugs. And then she phoned me and I didn't pick up the phone oh. and she, I couldn't, I couldn't talk to her about it. And so she texted me. She said, if I, if you don't text me back within five minutes, I'm calling you an ambulance. And so she did. And then the ambulance came and took me in. And then I never really got sick from the overdose. I, I was a little bit drowsy, but I didn't get sick and I was okay. And then they admitted me to the psychiatric unit uh, for five weeks. I was there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. See, and I'm 
<laughs> I know you have a you have a great family, and mm. I, a part of me is thinking I can just imagine your mom's thinking, "What is this interviewer trying to do?" Because <laughs> I'm a mom, right? <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to you know talk about what you what you mentioned in your book. Okay, yeah. So, no, my mom's read the book. My mom read the book, so she knows it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and it's oh, God, it's hard. It's hard, mm. and so. Like, you know, I thought of, you're trying, though. You're trying yeah. to push. Like, I literally, I did. I thought about Humpty Dumpty, okay? <laughs> and I thought, you're trying, like, Humpty Dumpty, you know? It's trying yeah. to put him back together again. And I thought, yeah. I got the feeling you're trying to put yourself, like, put yourself back yeah. together again, you know? And yeah, that's, oh, God, thank God. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. So, well. You know, one of the best things that I, I have going for me is a good medical team. Yeah. Um, I've been completely honest with my psychiatrist, yeah. like right from the first time I met him. I didn't tell my GP until after that hospitalization I got out. And he, a few months later, something came up and he asked me about it. And I told him, I said, yeah, I should have told you because I'd always told all my doctors before, but I guess I wanted a fresh start in Calgary. And I was like, oh, I got a fresh start. I don't need to tell him. And anyway, so now he knows. And he's really good about like, you know, advocating for me and helping me get help when I need it. And um, just having those, mainly those two people in place. And then, you know, counselors that I've worked with over the past has been really helpful because when I, when I do do something or I'm about to do something or, or something like that happens, I know that I've got them and I can go to and be honest with them. They're not going to judge me, not going to turn me away. They're going to support me and help me and you know adjust meds or get me in with a counselor or whatever I need and it's been a huge part of why I've had more success in Calgary than I ever did before oh good um, yeah and then of course my workplace has been really supportive I work for a Christian nonprofit, which has you know values that I believe in yeah um, I have a good church community and all that so yeah it's having people in your life that you can count on really really helps put yourself back together again as much yeah. as one can Good, good. So yeah. Calgary's been good to you. Good. God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So do you, do you, anything you want to add before we kind of shift gears to your art? Uh, well, I just want to, one, one little thing is that it still hasn't stopped. I actually um, had problems with my bipolar again this summer. I went three months without sleeping more than five hours a night and went five out five days in a row with sleeping less than two. And I wound up in the hospital and then I got out. And then a week later, I actually did something really harmful to myself. And even though I'm very open, I'm too embarrassed to tell you what it is. It was really gross and it was really stupid. And you don't, but I went to the doctor right away and, and, you know, got, got some counseling set up and got my meds adjusted. And uh, the meds do actually help with the factitious disorder because it's kind of a little bit like psychosis. So I take, Two, two antipsychotics, one's for the bipolar and then one's for the factitious disorder, and they make a big difference. Yeah. And so I just want people to know that, like, this is not something. Well, I've talked to an expert in the field, and he, he pretty much said, you know, it's going to be with you for your life. Okay. And so, yeah, it's, it's going to be something I'm fighting with forever, probably. You never really get cured of this. Okay. You just okay. manage it. Yeah. So you, you are literally, I, I know it's a cliche, but you, you just take each day at a time, hey? Yeah, you do. Yeah, exactly. And 
count your blessings and think about the good things so that you don't do the bad things. Yeah. Like your art. God, I yeah. like your art. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you illustrate buses. Okay. I and, do. And, yeah. And like I, um, I illustrate motorcycles. You do. And they're gorgeous. Thank you. And your buses, <laughs> like what blows my mind with your art is that like I thought I was detailed and then I see <laughs> your art with the bus and the entire city scene behind it and yeah. you just you stop and you go holy smokes right <laughs> um and for me I always there were times when I would be creating art and mm -hmm. um I'd be thinking okay like I sometimes I think you know sometimes I feel like I'm the only person out there who likes illustrating motorcycles. <laughs> no one else out there, you know. Um, yeah. Everybody else thing. is either you know doing landscapes or beautiful homes, right? Yeah. And I thought, and you like illustrating bikes. And so then the day when I was going through my feed and I saw your art, it was like, whoa, hold on, <laughs> what's this? Yeah. You know. And then I, <laughs> and then when I saw your name, I thought cool right? you know, <laughs> she doesn't like but you do more than mo um buses because i i've gone through your feed right yeah, yeah you do much more than buses but i it, it's what grabbed me was your 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 buses well um, the buses are the unique one right and it's kind of like your motorcycles too and you asked me a question a while back and it was like um does it take you back in your happy place when you draw buses because that's what it does for you when you drive motorcycles yeah and it's like yes I, I sometimes branch off and do something else but I always come back because they make me happy yeah. and people like them yeah. but you're you're you had mentioned uh that you don't have a motorcycle do you ride them or do you ever, did you ever ride them I rode a motorbike once in my okay. life okay okay and um I it was uh I was taken for a ride so mm, one of my good okay. friends she worked for a lawyer and he was a yeah. really nice guy. And he said, Joanna, if ever you want to go for a ride, just to know what it feels like riding on a bike. Yeah. Right. And it was in Nanaimo and yeah. I could say super nice guy. And yeah. we went down, um, I think it's Nanaimo Lakes road, which is just like long stretch of road, not a lot of traffic. And I was grinning ear, for, like <laughs> ear to ear, you know, bet. <laughs> yeah. Because to me, it felt like I was on, a, um, like, gone to the fair, and I was on some sort of, like, ride at oh, the fun. fair, right? It was just so liberating. And yeah. um, then the other time, what I have written is one anniversary before we moved to Victoria. We came down to Victoria to celebrate our anniversary, and um, my spouse and I, we rented scooters, yeah. So <laughs> he's yeah, ahead of me. Yeah, and I'm I'm riding the scooter, and he stops and he looks at me and he says, "Are you having a good time? Are you Are you okay?" Because I was very serious. Like I've I've got one of those very serious downturn faces, right? You know? And um, I said, "Yeah, I'm having a great time." And he goes, "You don't look it." And I said, "I am focused. Okay, I'm focused. I'm like I don't have the protection of a car here." So I'm just extremely focused on what I'm doing, you know. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, because here's what I find with art is when I get 
too busy with writing or book design. And you do that. You do, you're a graphic designer. Yeah. Yeah. And when I get too busy with that or just too busy and I don't like, it's been like, I'm going to be posting maybe tonight or tomorrow, a fashion illustration I did. And it was the last time I created anything was in July. Wow. yeah, you get That's it. A long time ago. Yeah. yeah. And, and I I'm feel just, you, man. You're probably, you're probably aching. Yes, you get it. Right? Yeah. And it's just like, I would talk to other artists and I'd be like, oh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so with the art, that is when anything that's going on, anything I'm thinking about in my brain literally just goes poof and it's yeah. gone. Right. And you're just, it's almost like you're in that sweet spot. You're in that beautiful place. Okay. Yeah. So, so we should let, you know, our listeners know what, what medium you use. And, and, and I want to know, cause I know we've talked about color pencils and markers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will usually go marker and then I'll use color pencil, you know, for accenting, you know, different right. areas. So how about you? Do you do the opposite? I do. Okay. Um, one of the things, so like my process, first of all, I don't, after taking those 24 pictures of buses, I did take some at places that I worked, yeah. but I happen to have a bunch of bus nut friends that are really talented photographers and they love it when I draw their buses. <laughs> so yeah. I have reams and like, I have basically unending supply of buses that are beautiful, shiny, reflected or damaged or whatever, all you can imagine different cities japan and australia and and all over the place and you know calgary edmonton and victoria everywhere you can think of and i have these pictures and so quite often what will happen is i'll see one and i'm like oh, i gotta draw that and then i'll see the next one i'm like oh but how can i draw so many there's so many to choose from <laughs> so i have like a backlog of all these images that i want to do and it, it each one takes me between 22 and 20 and 33 hours to do yeah so i have to you know my process is basically I'll take a photo, I'll blow it up. Um, I will tile it together as a one piece of paper. And then I use like a, car, a graphite uh, transfer paper and I'll kind of trace out the main part of the image so that I've got everything placed correctly before I go in and do the details with the pencil because the colored pencils, because um, it would take me forever. I'd have to measure everything and, yeah. and things like that to get the angles and all the shadows perfect. I just, I'm more interested in working on the color, bringing it to life. Yeah. Um, so I do the whole thing with colored pencil first and they're big. They're about 19, they're 24 by 19 inches. So they're not that small. Yeah. Um, I do the whole thing. I usually each colored pencil pass like section has about three or four layers of colored pencil. Okay. And then at the very end, I go over it all with an alcohol, alcohol markers. And what they do is they kind of, they almost dissolve the pencil kind a little bit and they fill in all those little holes. And so it becomes a very bright, vibrant, um, but you can still see the pencil crayon texture, which I love. It's, okay. It's, it's so far it's my favorite medium that I've worked with. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I love working with markers. I really Yeah, do. they're great. What kind do you use? I use the Copic or Copic markers. Okay. And <laughs> with our latest move, I was telling my daughter, I said, I'm missing a marker. And mm. she's looking at me. I said, this is serious. I remember before we <laughs> moved, I had two markers, this shape, and I can only find one. You know, and she's like, oh, this is serious. And I'm like, oh, you betcha. This is serious. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. 
right? Well, so. I have discovered I have discovered two brands of alcohol-based markers that I like just as much as the Copics, and they work out to like a dollar fifty a piece. Oh, really? And or even less. Some of them are like I think one pack I got was like one hundred and fifty colors, and it was like one hundred twenty dollars or something. Oh, it was wow. crazy. And the only thing is, you can't refill them, which is a shame because then you, if you buy a big set and then you run one out, then what I find is for the few colors that I run out of a lot, I'll get, I'll get a Copic, but these other colors are just as vibrant. So the two brands are Ohuhu, Ohuhu, I think it's spelled O-H-U-H-U, and then Artix, which is spelled A-R-T-X-X, I believe. I can give you those names for the show notes if you want, yeah. in case people are curious, but I love them and they're so beautiful. And, you know, Copics cost like 12 bucks a piece. And- we don't I think, don't they? <laughs> no, we, didn't do well, we don't tell people yeah. that. <laughs> okay. Especially not family members that don't want you to buy yeah. our supplies, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Your secret's blown. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're, they're not cheap. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't mind getting those names. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, Cindy, we're just kind of wrapping it up here. Yeah. Um, what I've kind of said what uh, creating art does for me. So how, what does creating art do for you? Well, the biggest thing is it gives me attention in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like everything's about getting attention, but you know, when you do something and people give you attention for something that you've done well and that you've, enjoyed doing and you you've made people happy with it well that's a lot better than banging your head against the ground or or (laughs) taking pills or whatever it's just a lot healthier and so I think art helps keep me grounded especially when I've got another project that I'm excited about just keeps me going so that's my answer to that question good good so where can people find you on social media um if you know for your book okay yeah uh for your art I'm I've got my pen ready Okay, so my Instagram handle is C Bakshan. Yeah. So just C in my last name. Uh, you can find my art page on Facebook. at Cindy Louise Bakshan. Cindy Louise Bakshan? Yeah. Okay. And then uh, my book is on Amazon. You can get it as an ebook or as a paperback. Um, it's available in a bunch of different countries. And it is called Liar, Liar, Gown on Fire. Yeah. And if you type it in, you won't find any other books with that title. And you can also search under Factitious Disorder or Munchausen's, and it usually pops up there too. So okay. those, that's where you can find that. Okay. Yeah, you won't be, I don't think any bookstores hold it. Okay. Um, but you can, you can see reviews on Goodreads too. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, any website or anything like that? Yes, I do. I have a website. It's Cindy Bakshan Creative. Okay. Dot CA. Okay. Bakshan Creative. All one word. Great. .ca. Well, thank you, Cindy. Thank you. Thanks for um, having I, me. Yeah. And um, hang, like, just keep, keep, you keep creating art. I'll keep creating art. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Great. We'll keep okay. creating art. And okay. uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay. Okay.